Happy New Year, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of Football 360 uh, for 2021. I'm delighted to welcome Danny and Nikki Cowley onto the show this week. Two guys who I don't think it's a secret I have huge admiration for their achievements, their story, the way they ha they handle themselves. Uh, I think um, they're uh, they're a great example for, for for football fans, for coaches, for players, for anyone interested in the game to to have a listen to, to learn from. Uh, I know everyone's gone into to lockdown in the UK over the course of the last 24 hours. Uh, my thoughts are with you. Uh, I appreciate it's going to be a difficult few weeks and I hope that, that you can find avenues to, to keep yourselves occupied. Um, I also hope that there's, there's plenty of support out there for, for, for you if you need it. Um, my, my, my best wishes are with you all. Um, you're certainly in my thoughts and I hope that this episode, along with other, other similar uh, types of content that are out there help you to pass the time in, in what will be I'm sure a difficult few weeks but as I say you're all in my thoughts um, I hope you enjoy this episode um, Danny Cowley and Nikki Cowley are two guys who as I say I love listening to uh, and I hope you do too thanks a lot Happy New Year, everyone, and uh, welcome to another Football 360 chat. I'm delighted to have Danny and Nikki Cowley on the show. Happy New Year, gents. Happy New Year. Thank you. Thank you. First first question, just quickly. Danny, did you manage to get through that huge turkey you were talking about? Yeah, we've just about eaten it, I think. We um, we obviously prepared to have um, our parents over and, and Nikki and his wife and his children over, but, but unfortunately, because of lockdown, laws in, in, in the UK, it wasn't possible. So, um, yeah, we pretty much ate turkey for, for, for about seven days on the truck. <laughs> <laughs> turkey curry, turkey sandwiches. This was it. This was it. Yeah. Turkey pasta. I think we've had, we went, we went around the world with, 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 with turkey, but it was, um, Brilliant. Brilliant. It was it's all, thankfully it's gone now. So, so, uh, so when, um, when the football careers are over, then the, the first turkey cooking cookbook from the Cowley family is going to come out and be a, a big success, I'm sure. Absolutely. <laughs> nice one. Okay, um, let's get get straight into a quick warm up. Um, I'm going to start by asking you both a couple of questions. So, so first question to Danny: Your favourite player ever, and why? Oh, favourite player ever, and why? I'd probably have to say Paul Gascoigne. Um, Certainly growing up in kind of back end of the 80s and, and 90s. Um, I remember the 1986 World Cup. Diego Maradona made me cry. Uh, yeah. And then obviously the 1990 World Cup, which was in Italy and, and Gaza pretty much took the took the took the, the competition by storm. And I can remember the lead up to it actually. And they probably Bobby wasn't Bobby Robson wasn't sure whether he was going to take him or not, and uh, and eventually did. I can remember him playing Czechoslovakia in a um, in a friendly game in the lead up to that tournament. I think yeah. England won two, and he just he just um, controlled the game, had a really big a big influence on it, and I think scored maybe the fourth goal, and that kind of cemented his place. And it was just everything about him, really, his character, his personality, the way he could light up a game. Um, yeah, he was brilliant, and, and certainly, yeah, in, in 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 and around that time, he would have been, yeah, he would have been an inspiration for sure. Certainly on the pitch, anyway. Great shout! Surprisingly, I think you're the first person to name him, but I agree. And that, and that Czech 
the Czechoslovakia game. I think Bobby Robson was on the on the sideline and he said something to Don Howe about the quality of, of, of Gaza when he scored that fourth goal. And yeah, mate, I remember. We're, we're all I think we're all of a similar vintage. So that, that that was magic back in those days. That was the kind of stuff that grabbed me as a kid, no doubt. And Nicky, what about you? Well, if I'd gone first, Kevin, I would have um, definitely chose Paul Gascoigne as well. I think going back to um, going back to maybe um, being nine or ten years old, ninety uh, Italian ninety, yeah. he definitely gave me a reason to want to get off my sofa or Amiga um, at the time, probably playing computer <laughs> games and get outside on the street and practice some of the skills that he'd shown in in that particular tournament. And even now. Um, my my son's really into his football. He's he's nine years old, and he often asks me who my favourite player was. Um, and yeah, Paul Gascoigne is somebody that comes straight to mind. Another real influence in my family would have also been um, Bobby Moore. Um, being a big West Ham fan, my dad would have educated Danny and myself about Bobby, and um, we'd have watched many of um, his matches or or clips of of the games. The, the moment where he stopped Pele when he was running at him um, in in the seventy World Cup, I think that was against yeah. Brazil. Um, yeah, that would have that would have definitely stood out to us as as, as kids, and was it was a huge reason why why we love West Ham so much. Brilliant, brilliant. Yeah, I mean the national treasure, Bobby Moore, no doubt about it. Okay, so so Nicky, um, second question: your favourite team ever? So your favourite eleven players, and what captured you about that team particularly? Oh, um, good question. I think um, I'd probably go more more modern now um, with my with my choice, and I and I'd have to say um, most recently Liverpool. Um, you know, being huge sort of influence really on on how Danny and myself watch the game. Um, we speak about them regularly, uh, love their fast attacking approach, um, high intensity, play with a, a real variety as well. Um, and yeah, really exciting to watch. Um, yeah. I think Jurgen Klopp's worked out um, a, a method um, for his players. Um, and, you know, every time you watch them play, there's a real identity about them. And it's it's really it's really clear to see what, what um what they're going after and you know you know some some really intelligent coaching um but also um a really powerful mindset within the group you know they were yeah. re relentless last season with their consistency and um yeah i also like their their humility as well you know regardless of any sort of um positive results they've had they just they just seem to be like a machine and and, and keep going um, I did watch the match last night against um, Southampton, and yeah. I've been disappointed with that result. But you know, I'm I'm sure with with how powerful you know they they are as a group that they'll they bounce back and, and come back stronger again. And their next two matches, I think, are, are Aston Villa and and um, Man United, so two huge games. I'm sure they'll be very keen to to put the wrongs right from their last performance against Villa. And and you know that's set up for a for a huge game of football, isn't it? Against Manchester United in the next league match. Yeah, definitely. It's one we all look to, look forward to. I, I mean, I think just a couple of things on that. In lockdown, uh, or sorry, in, in, in COVID times, uh, I thought that Liverpool might struggle to maintain the, the intensity levels because they, they seem to feed off the crowd. Klopp, as a manager, seems to feed off the crowd at times as well. But that, at least in the early stages of post or, or COVID time football, it felt like they 
they maintain that intensity because of the standards that are driven by maybe the likes of Milner and Henderson and the dressing room and the, and the, the, the environment they've got. But maybe now they're going to start to struggle a little bit to maintain that and maybe the dips might become a little bit more more common purely because they just don't have it's a new environment to adapt to and, and it's almost a superhuman effort to maintain those level levels of intensity they had around let's say the, the, the Champions League winning period in COVID, COVID times what, what do you think about that? Yeah I think you make a really good point Kevin I think you know Klopp is renowned for um, you know getting the support on side and um, it looks like such a difficult place to go to Anfield to play and yeah. and compete against them, and he, um, you know, to to keep the to keep the group so focused um, and driven without that support there, you know, just showed how relentless they were. I think what what I really like about about what Liverpool have done in recent times is just probably the way they've identified the right types of players for the game model and and recruited yeah. the players that. that that um, you know are, are really suitable for the way Klopp wants to play football, and um, you never have a feeling that one person's more important than another in that group. Um, you always feel that it's um, it's an effort of uh, that, that's really that really shared amongst a group of people. And you mentioned names like James Milner, who I'm sure is a huge influence off the field, and you need those senior players in your group um, to make sure that that. That everyone, um, you know, has a role model to look up to, and he is without doubt that. And I think he's, you know, really emotionally intelligent manager as well. Even through yeah. disappointments, he seems to, in the in the media, handle handle it calmly and stay quite measured. And you know, that's that's really helped them be as successful as 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 they've been in in recent times. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, Danny, your favourite eleven players or that one team, one one identity, and why why they captured you so much? I think if you if we look back, obviously our dad introduced us to football. So even though I wouldn't have lived the early seventies, you think of that Brazil team in around the the, the nineteen seventy World Cup, the Pelé yeah. team. Um, then you go and then you look at maybe the Dutch teams of the seventies, the the Johan Cruyff era. Um, and and both of those teams very possession based. I remember seeing some clips of of the Dutch team and just their counter press before counter press was even in, was was <laughs> even even a word. But but just the way that they reacted when they lost the ball and how um, aggressively they tried to win the ball back. Um, yeah. Go into the eighties, don't you? And you look at the efficiency of the German teams, the Lothar Matthäus teams, and just like a machine like in the way that they were built. I I hated them, mate. I hated them. If, if, if you're ever going to hate a football team, you're going to hate them, weren't you? As an Englishman. Certainly as an Englishman, yeah. In the, in the 80s and 90s, they kind of always had it over us, didn't they? And then Argentine, Argentina, and they were kind of based on individual brilliance of Maradona. And just I'm, Diego Maradona, I have a really strange relationship with him, really, because I hated him for what he did in terms of the... Um, in, ter in terms of the handball goal and the hand of God goal in 1986, but but what a player! Just as a, as an individual in my lifetime, just what how one player can just, just influence a team in the way that he did. Just just incredible what he could do with a ball. I mean, I think we've all seen the clips of him in warm-ups. Just like he could make the ball talk, couldn't he? He just um, yeah, just, just 
amazing footballer. And then you kind of move towards more modern day modern day times. And I think for Nicky and I, we we really like the tra- transitional teams. Nicky's obviously alluded to the Liverpool team, yeah, like Bielsa and he, and his work. You know, not just at Leeds, but previously, you know, done some fantastic work. Um, coaches like Ralph Rannick and and all of these transitional based coaches. I think for Nicky and I, we like our football fast. We like it to be to be exciting, and that's certainly certainly what what we what we enjoy to watch and 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 what we enjoy to coach as well. Okay, so if I was going to put you on the spot, go on, give me one team. One team, um, I would in my lifetime, I would probably say. Um, I'll probably say Liverpool as well. Just in terms, yeah. yeah, in terms of my admiration for them, yeah, the modern day Liverpool team. I think so. Maybe because it's at the forefront of my mind. I don't know, but but yeah. certainly for their relentless nature and their humility, yeah, there's a lot to admire there for sure. Go on, yeah. yours. What's well, yours? Mark, mine. Probably, probably Barcelona, two thousand and nine. Um, I think that was just so fresh. I, I mean, my dad's a massive influence on me, uh, and I remember him. To, and it was a period in my t- in my life when I didn't talk to him as much. But when I did talk to him, he was always so enthused watching them. Uh, you know, he talked about this young kid Messi coming through, talking about the way that they played, the way that they, they. It was just something that he hadn't seen, and he loves his football and he's watched football for many years. And I think. You know, maybe a sentimental call as well because of that. But yeah, definitely, I, I thought that team was incredible. Yeah, absolutely. They were they were brilliant, weren't they? In terms of the way they could control games. Yeah. And, and just can, as a consequence, just control results. Um, what Pep Guardiola did with that group, and obviously to to you know to, to have Lionel Messi as well at the at, at the absolute top of his game was yeah. just cherry on the top but but still the Zavis and the Iniestas just um, how, how do you ever play because in our era as growing up it was all about the big strong athletic kids wasn't it and certainly Absolutely. you saw so many academies that, that that kind of wanted those types of players certainly in England anyway and it was almost like there was an arrogance within our professional game that if you if you get big athletic strong powerful players then we'll make them into footballers and we'll make yeah. them technically tactically good enough to play at the highest level. And what they what they always what in my opinion, what they they forgot during that period was just learning capacity. The capacity of the player to actually learn. And and sometimes these big physical athletic players with unbelievable obviously uh, physical and athletic prowess don't always have the same level of learning capacity. And you look at Xavi and Iniesta I mean, I would love to know how those two players, if they if they had been born in England, how they, especially during the era that they would have grown up, how they would have um, how they would have developed, and whether they would have become the players that they obviously ended up becoming. Absolutely, it's a great point. I mean, I I also think Busquets is someone who gets forget forgotten about because in that in that midfield trio, the dynamics and the movement. That the patterns that those two, that Iniesta and Javi had, had ahead of Busquets, meant that they had to have such an intelligent player who managed space, who managed the ball well. And I think what I also liked about that was that he brought three or four of that that team through from the B team. And so it's almost like like the, like the blueprint for a football club, isn't it? You, you've got a manager who goes from 
the second team to the first team and dominates the work literally the world with some of the players he's brought through and as you say their capacity for learning was incredible and obviously as a manager he had his first job in management i think in his book or in one of the, one of his books you talk about their pre-season in st andrews and that first briefing that he gave the players and from that moment onwards there was just momentum built that it just clicked and it was the right place the right time the right fundamentals but it just it was yeah i mean for me that that whole journey must have been a magical magical one and brilliant for us to be able to watch from afar absolutely imagine being loaded in midfield by Busquets, Xavi, Iniesta, and then then you have Messi coming in and, and, and <laughs> mate, sit sit back and just watch them enjoy it. That's all I'd say. <laughs> Amazing. Okay, um, this is the long, longest warm up ever, but um, there's still still two questions left, and th this question's I'm really interested to hear what you two say about this. So, you're a chairman, you have. You pick of the best managers in the world, and he he has his pick of the best players in the world for one game to win a cup final. The, the, the end of time, the last football match ever played. Which manager are you going to going to pick to put a team together to win over ninety minutes or one hundred and twenty minutes or however long it takes to to lift that trophy? Just one game. Just one game. Just one game. It's a really good question because I'm always always. <laughs> Um, drawn to the managers that have got the best human skills. So I like, like, love Bobby Robson. Yeah. I love Brian Clough. Um, certainly, I look at both of those and just just outstanding at, at managing people. Um, but for, if it's just for one game, up, we, we love Jurgen Klopp now, as, as, as you probably worked out during this warm-up. But um, just one game, you have to say Mourinho. You cannot go away from Mourinho for one game because... He's got unbelievable pragmatism and he has the ability to, um, if it's just for one match, he has the ability to, to work it out and find the best way for, for the players that he has his, at his disposal against the opponent. So he always considers the opponent. And for that reason, you look at his career and look at how successful he has been at winning important matches and the big matches. And I don't think you can look beyond him. No, great answer, Nicky. Yeah. Oh, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with Sir Alex Ferguson, Kevin. Um, and yeah, I would like to see that final between Jose Mourinho and and Sir Alex. I think that would be Absolutely. a really interesting watch. Mouthful, I think I just think you have to look at the success that he's had, and you know his ability to to win those huge games of football, and a lot of the time winning games really late on. Um, the the moment that's springing to my mind now is the, the Champions League victory that they had over Bayern Munich. Um, I remember watching that in my house and those two late goals. It was just, even if you wasn't a Manchester United fan, if you're just a, a football fan, you'd have been jumping off of your seat and, in, and enjoying that. And Same. yeah, he just seemed to have the ability to be able to probably say the right thing um, to the group at the right time. I've, li I've listened to a lot of the players that have played from in the past when they've been interviewed and that is definitely something that they that they go back to um when when thinking back how how he managed them so well um and what another interesting point about Ferguson I'm probably going to talk myself out of the job here Kevin is that he seemed to always keep it fresh and change his um coaching staff regularly and you yeah. know he seemed to he seemed to be able to make big <laughs> and he's nodding now I'm thinking yeah this is a good <laughs> idea um 
that's where I brought it up. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get out of it, Dan. <laughs> no, no, but um, he, he seemed to, um, he, he, he seemed to be, he'd be able to make really big decisions that sometimes might have raised the eyebrows of many of us that were not inside the group and thought that was quite surprising. Um, but over time, they seem to be the right decisions for the for the best interest of the group. And um, yeah, he he he's a, a, a manager that that has had huge success and and one that I would um, definitely like to manage a team in a one off games. So I think he'd have the 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 ability to win that match. Yeah. Okay. Those so those two are the most popular answers that I've had in doing this for eighteen months or so. Um, Mourinho wins that in, in terms of the, the numbers at the moment and, and Mourinho would be my pick for a, for a one-off game um, but I don't think you could go too, too far wrong with either of them to be honest <laughs> No Okay, final question Nicky, to you first give us a, a little known fact about Nicky Cowley that very few people know other than those nearest and dearest to you without, without going too much detail obviously <laughs> I give a fact on him and he gives a fact <laughs> <laughs> Go on then, we'll do this the other way around that's more interesting. <laughs> Go on, Dan. What would it be? What would my fact be? Um, really grumpy in the mornings. <laughs> grumpy before nine o'clock. And for Nicky and I, the life we've led, whether it was in teaching or whether it was in football management, we'd normally start the day pretty early, maybe yeah. nine o'clock. So you'd have at least four hours of grumpiness. Before, See, before so you're the shield. You're, you're the shield for everyone else. You, t- you take all that and then, and then all the good stuff comes out once you've, once you've arrived. Nicky gets going as the day goes on, but, but certainly he's, um, yeah, he's, he's, he's grumpy in the mornings. That comes from my dad. My dad was grumpy in the mornings. I'm, I'm always quite happy in the mornings. Yeah. Okay. Well, all right. Uh, Nicky, uh, you're, 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 ter- you're ter- to turn Danny out now. Good okay. to go first in this question. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. So a little known fact, well, when Danny and, and I travel together to, to the club that we're working for, he always makes the tea in the morning and always drives. The reason for my grumpiness, Kevin, is probably because I've always got training on my mind and the, 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 all the finer details of making sure that um, it's all going to run smoothly. So once actually training um, is, is happening, I like to be really enthusiastic. So I'm almost charging myself up for, for the session. That's what I'm going to... Um, put it down to <laughs> well i've seen that first stand and i can remember thinking god he doesn't say very much does he <laughs> Danny, yeah. danny's coming over and looking after me while I, while I can see you and i can see everything on your mind and you're pacing it out we all love a few cones every now and then don't we we love the colors and we love the dimensions and i could see it see it was playing heavy on you well, it's um, yeah, it's, it's it's difficult to get wording with Danny sometimes, Kevin. So sometimes people call it grumpiness, or maybe maybe I just um, need a bit more airtime. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and try and mediate as best I can for the for the next hour or so. <laughs> right, let's um, let's get into it then. So yeah, the players are all bored, but the coaches have had a brilliant warm up, so it's all good so far. Um, <laughs> Let's uh, let's get into West Ham a little bit in your early days. I know you two followed them around the country a little bit, and when I when I think of that West Ham team, I think of maybe Ray Stewart smashing in penalties past helpless goalkeepers. I think of George Paris and Jeff Pike, and and then on to Tony McCotty and Frank McAvenny, and you know that that team was really exciting to watch. I think you know along with maybe Tottenham, a team that never really won a lot at the at, the, at that time, but were really really exciting to watch in the first division. What was um, what are your sort of abiding memories, and what was it about them that helped sort of maybe maybe develop your love for the game? 
I think our um, our first memory, I think the first game we ever went to would have actually been West Ham United v Oxford United in, it would have been the Milk Cup back then, now yep. the Cup. And I can remember, Nick, you would have been about four or five, maybe I would have been seven or eight. And uh, it was a um, pretty uneventful game. We West Ham won 1-0, Tony Cotty, I think, scored in the 83rd minute. At Upton Park, this is, or... But all I can remember is the celebration. I think we were in the West Stand and I can just remember Tony Cotty scoring. And of course, they had this brilliant relationship, him and him and Frank McAvenny. Yeah. Probably the best best forward partnership, certainly our, in our lifetime as West Ham supporters anyway. Um, and yeah, I could just remember he's gone and I can just remember the ground erupting, but... But no, our first memories would have been all around going to Upton Park and Dad would come home from work and he would, um, I can always remember like a Tuesday or Wednesday night and he'd have tickets, do you remember Nick, he'd have tickets in his suit jacket and he'd be hiding them and he'd come in and uh, all of a sudden he'd just, as he was talking to us, asking us about our school day and he would just, these tickets would just start to just pop them up in his suit jacket and it just come out. And I could just remember Nicky and I being so excited. And then, yeah, that one. getting our colours on. And then uh, the drive would be about 45 minutes, maybe half an hour to 45 yeah. minutes to, from Essex to, to, to East London. And then we would get there and it would be the first one to spot the floodlights. And we'd always have a, have a competition who could see the floodlights first and then, yeah, watch the game. Come on, we'd get fish and chips from the, it was called the Brothers Fish and Chip Shop. And from my memory, it was like the best fish and chips in the world because that's what Dad had told us. And certainly, <laughs> standard one, they tasted better. And then on the way home, we'd listen to John Pierce and Capital, Capital FM and get all the other results in. And that was just, yeah, the best, the best football, best football days. Brilliant, brilliant. Love it. Nicky, what about, what about your memories of that time? Yeah, similar to Danny, just really fond memories, Kevin, of of loving, um, feeling, um, you know, a sense of belonging towards a football club, I guess. And yeah. I think that's what, um, you know, really appeals to people when they when they um, think about football is it does give you that, doesn't it? And that, that is really important to have in your life. Um, but for me, it's just walking up the, the probably the, the steps um, to the to the pitch for the very first time I can still remember that as one of my earliest memories actually just seeing how green the pitch was and how big it was and the as Danny said the the floodlights being on as well on the midweek match was always extra exciting but more than that it's actually probably the the the, the songs as well throughout the game you know yeah, like I'm, sure. forever, I'm, I'm forever blowing bubbles is a is a real anthem um and I think the um traditional football clubs normally have really powerful songs and that was that would be something that that will always be in, in, in my life. And I guess, you know, it's, it's really powerful, isn't it? Music, songs, um, and when all of the supporters come together to sing on Forever Blowing Bubbles, when the players are walking out onto the pitch, it um, gives you a great feeling. And, um, you know, it's uh, just fantastic to be part of. But also walking around the stadium before the game, the excitement of not quite knowing what team's going to be picked or how well we're actually going to play. Um, if you're a West yeah. Ham supporter, going back to when we were younger, we were often suffered disappointments. I think one season down, we travelled every to every single away game, and I, I don't think we won a single match, did we? Maybe for the whole season, and we were just so excited to be going because we thought that you know 
surely, you know, one of these matches we're going to try and like, nick a, a lucky win or, or at least a draw. <laughs> and, um, Kidderminster away in the FA Cup. Don't do us an injustice. Third round in the FA Cup, we won. I think we won one nil away at, at Kidderminster. Do you remember? You would have stood on a milk cart. Yes. Uh, yeah. And that was the other part of it is we quite often we'd stand uh, behind the goal in the North Bank. Um, and when you scored, you know, you'd, you'd physically get moved and, you know, yeah. cleared out sometimes. And I can remember getting yeah. crushed um, uh, in, in, into the barrier at the front for, for, for a period of time and panicking a little bit um, before it then easing, e easing off. Um, and I remember one game we played Wrexham in the FA Cup and dad held me in his arms. I was so small, I couldn't see the pitch. He, he held me aloft and kindly uh, a policeman offered at half time to 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 or a steward maybe to to bring me down close to the closer to the to the front so I could see and he actually took me and I sat with the Sir John Sir John um, St John's ambulance team right by yeah. the side of the pitch and um you know just special memories like that that was just like luck that I was in the right um spot at that time for for that to happen and I guess it gives you sort of you know memories to look back on and not quite often you you're with your favorite people aren't you when you're living these memories which ultimately your family absolutely absolutely yeah no great great stories and i think I, it just i know it's changed we all have to accept change in our lives and, and change with regard to football but i feel a little bit disappointed for this generation that they don't get to have some of those experiences um, I know probably every generation has thought that and probably what, what to us was, was the old days, was the new days for, for the generation before us. But yeah, I mean, the, the, the anticipation, as you say, the whole experience arriving, seeing that gleaming green turf, you know, mm -hmm. maybe under the lights or whatever, you know, the smell of fried onions, in, you know, that I grew up in Guernsey and so I didn't get to see Middlesbrough very, very often. But when I did, um, it was even more special because it was rare that I got there and, you know, to go in the Holgate end, exactly the same as you're talking about there, a little kid being crushed by the, by the whole crowd rushing forward when Middlesbrough did, did score, which we weren't too bad a team back then. So we, we, we did all right with Tony Mowbray, Gary Pallister, Bruce Riox kind of era and, and onwards. So we had some decent teams. So we were winning in the first division, sorry, winning in the second division, not winning in the first division, but um, yeah, memories that certainly made my love for football concrete no doubt about it yeah. it's amazing actually how much it shapes your life like i can go back to so i remember west ham losing their fake cup semi-final nick do you remember to nottingham forest we got beat four nil yeah yeah Miguel got sent off by keith hackett absolute keith hackett and diego maradona at that time were just yeah not 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 my favorite football people but <laughs> not literally remember the West Ham supporters the whole game sick Billy Bonds Clown Blue Army Billy Bonds yep. Army. and literally it shapes you because you're not West Ham support you're always an underdog and yep. you, 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 you're just used to being really determined and really resilient as a consequence of being in losing positions most weeks and, it, and I can remember it was you know that experience gave me that sort of never give up attitude really yep. well, I think that that is it is the case, isn't it? it definitely um, shapes your values, like you say, Dan. I remember like being with yourself and Dad and Mum and West Ham losing maybe three or four nil, and seeing loads of supporters exiting and leaving and trying to, you know, get away early to beat the traffic. And it was even maybe a midweek game when we had school the next day, and 
if one of us ever suggested that we was going to get up and leave, you know, dad would have firmly pinned our backsides back down to the seat because <laughs> the message that he sent is your West Ham supporters through thick and thin, regardless of the scoreline, you stay to the very, very bitter end and you clap the team off at the end of the game. And that's how, that's how we behave. And their message is that no doubt, you know, we've passed on to our children and that, you know, the, the, the most powerful message in, in amongst all of that is, um, you know, stick together and you're a family, aren't you? And through the good times and the bad, you 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 have to um you have to carry on supporting the the, the team or the people that you love the most. I love that. I love that. I can't imagine that three three fellas having a chat uh, who were who were supporters of Bayern Munich, Barcelona and, and Manchester United in the last 20, <laughs> 30 years would be having the same conversation and the same effect on their lives. It's uh, yeah, it's great it's great to hear. It's great to hear. Okay, let's fast forward uh, 25, 30 years. Let's talk about the way that you two work um, and game model, two words that I think a lot of coaches use now. I, I think a few years ago, everyone talked about a philosophy and I, I never really liked the word philosophy. Game models feels a little bit more real, a little bit more relevant and realistic. Um, so let's, let's go into that a little bit. How, how do you two define the the, the the game model um and, and how do you apply that i think first and foremost coaching managing is always about people so i think sometimes we can get caught up too much in game models and tactical, and tactical aspects of the game but what we always must remember is that we are we're coaching human beings and and we're coaching people and it's you know the best coaches um, always remember that and uh, the, the players are always the centre of everything um, yeah. and just trying to really tr trying to create an environment which allows the players to, to, to perform at their best but, but certainly for Nicky and I our, our, our ideal is to play fast attacking football we like transitional football um, we like the players to, to, to think, think forward run forward play forward uh, yeah. And 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 certainly we like to, to to be aggressive when we when when we're against the ball and try to win the ball as, as high up the pitch as we can as quickly as we can, yeah. And and try to control and dominate games in 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 that way. Um, what you always have to do it is be respectful that your ideals and the way you want to work um, have to relate to the group that you're working with. And first and foremost, I think it has to it has to work for the club. And then it has to work for the for for the people. And when I talk about the people, it's it's the players that you have at your disposal. Yeah. Uh, it's the it's the staff that you have at your disposal. Um, it's the it's the it's the board, the directors, and the chairman, and their vision, and their and and their and 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 their interests, and their their their, their beliefs in the game. But most importantly. It's the supporters, and what do the supporters want? Um, but but certainly, first and foremost, you ha you have to work with the players that you have. That is, if you if you want to be successful, you have to work with a group, and then you have to try to win games. And if you win games, you get given the time to then be able to evolve the team in the in the way that 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 that, that, that you want. And I think that is it for Nicky and I. To always find clubs that have that see the game in the same way that we do and yeah. then to work towards that that ideal and that that is what a philosophy is isn't it ultimately it's an ideal and that's why pretty much i prefer 
I'd prefer the game game model because what is philosophy? I think people get caught up. We're talking coaching philosophy. We're talking player philosophy. Uh, we're talking about your managing philosophy. Whereas the game model is just the, the 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 style and the way that you want your players to play. But but no, that that is it. And then for us, I think it's always then to try to build the relationship and the trust with the players before we start to coach them. And once you build that relationship and trust, then the players understand that you have their best interests at heart, then you can start to... Absolutely, yeah. And, ...and make them better. And then everything you do, whether it's on-field coaching, whether it's off-field coaching, is around that game model and working towards the way that, that, that you want to play. Yeah, I'm with you. It's, it's interesting. I mean, a couple of things there. I mean, winning the hearts and minds of the players has got to be one of the biggest challenges for, for any coach, any manager at any level of the game. I mean, I, I have it over here in Spain. I've, I've got to get my, my Spanglish out and, and, and deal with the, the, the initial kind of slight embarrassment of not being able to deliver exactly what I think. And I've got to get them to see that, that you know, I'm there for them. I'm there to improve them and I'm there to, there to hopefully be there for their benefit rather than my own. And I think the other thing is, um, you mentioned supporters there, and I, I find I'm quite compromised by this because I, my, my belief is, uh, and I can say this because I don't, I don't have that many fans watching my games, um, but I feel supporter influence is too great in the game these days. Now, I, by that, I don't mean any disrespect to the role of supporters in the game because ultimately it's their, they're, they're their football clubs. They'll be there long after you're there or whatever, you know, their families are connected in the same way that you are with West Ham with these football clubs. But with social media and um, with every Tom, Dick and Harry being able to put their opinion across, it feels to me these days like chairman and boards and, and even sometimes managers maybe get influenced by that when that groundswell of opinion starts to grow on a certain topic, whatever it is. And, and for me, you only have to look at the way that maybe the, the public reacts to the decision about about the, uh, the, the confinement and the lockdown yesterday to see that there are negative people out there and the negative noise sometimes drowns out the positive people and I don't think that's a good thing for football in general um, so that's just a bit of a bugbear of mine but I mean have you got any 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 kind of is it does that resonate with you a little bit I think I think ultimately first and foremost it's always the supporters club isn't it yes See, so you're, it's always for the supporters. Everything you do um, is is for the supporters. So you know, of course, you have the players' best interests at heart, and of course, you know your your main focus is trying to develop them both as people and as players, with yeah. the the overall outcome being to affect the, the the team and the club, and the you know to make the make the supporters happy and pleased about about what they see. Because like we've already alluded to, I think. We first started out in football at grassroots, but watching and supporting a, a football club and our, some of our best early memories come from that. So we've, we've lived that ourselves. And, and, and so have a lot of the players and people involved in football. They, they all started out in grassroots. They all started out. Yeah, same love, yeah. So um, I think what's hard for supporters, and this is, this is unfortunately the world that we live in, is that... They only get to see a certain part of it. They only really get to see what the clubs show them. Yeah. So then they have an opinion, but their opinion is based on only maybe 10% of the, the, the whole picture. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's football's fault. I believe football needs to be more transparent. 
Um, and then I think by being more transparent, by having more human connection with the the football departments and the supporters, then yeah. slowly but surely the supporters would start to treat the players and the staff like human beings again. And then we'd have that much better human connection. But oh, yeah, I mean, yeah. let's be honest, it's... I think it's, it's, it's probably understanding both sides as well. In terms of in terms of the supporters, I think um, you know nowadays more than ever, and this just isn't in football with social media. Everyone is very quick to make an opinion, and sometimes somebody could type or send a message before really actually thinking about what they're sending and the nice. and the and the impact that that could have on 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 the people involved. Um, so I think that. All people in life have got a responsibility to have a bit more emotional intelligence about um, the opinion that they have, whether that's got to be an immediate reaction to something that's gone wrong or whether that should be more considered over a period of time. And maybe they should sleep on it before deciding whether to post or to send send a, a message out. And at the same time, you know, the clubs have a responsibility, as Danny says, to have a real transparency so that the supporters feel that there's really good communication coming from the owners and what sure. the club philosophy looks like. And they want to see the supporters a marriage between the club philosophy and also the coaching um, staff's philosophy. And once they see that alignment, then I'm sure they feel a lot more um, confident about the the football club achieving the success that, that, that they want to have. Um, but in and amongst all of that, there has to be a self-awareness, doesn't there, of exactly where your club sits within the football pyramid. And, yeah. you know... Um, I'm sure that also all supporters want their clubs to win every single match. Um, but like we've seen with the recently promoted teams from both divisions, you know, look at the Premier League with Leeds, um, West Brom, uh, Fulham. You know, it's it's a huge step up. And I'm sure the the game model, um, the game idea would have to change for some some of those teams when they when they step into the Premier League. And it's probably only really Bielsa that has been the standout coach that has stood up for his um, way of playing and, you know, his beliefs, which is why he's getting, you know, such such um, huge admiration from from so many people at the minute because he's, he's stuck with his philosophy, isn't he? And, and he seems to be winning as many games as he's losing at the moment in the Premier League. And that, you know, I think he's got double the amount of points maybe than, than West Brom and Fulham have picked up so far. But getting back to the original point that I made is most supporters do have to have that self-awareness really of, of what the expectations are for their club in that level, and ultimately the owners and the and and the manager and coaching staff have got to be really clear of communicating the the idea um, and the way of working to the to the to the support, so they have a clear understanding of of how you're moving forward. Yeah, um, I mean, just just to, on that realism, I, I actually think that just to add to my point before. There are two types of supporter these days. So there's the supporters who maybe go away or, or are that hardcore of that club that have been passed on like a family like heirloom and, and it's it's something that's special and, and, it, and it's almost like a religious kind of connection. And then there's everyone else. And everyone else who's a supporter of the club but perhaps doesn't act in the same way as, as I believe those hardcore, you know, heartfelt supporters do. My point, I guess, is that their, their noise seems to drown out the hardcore of the supporters and that I guess that's just my interpretation of what happens and and when you talk about realism Nicky it's those people who perhaps just part-time supporters or just you know, like you say the quick the quick kind of fire one off on on uh, on Twitter or whatever 
without any responsibility or any connection or even anyone holding them to account in their own life on their opinions that maybe influences football too much these days. And I think that's what I'd like to see that the game get away from. If there's any way that's possible, I'm not sure. I think you have, you have two types of people, don't you? You have uh, the people that see the worst in everything and the worst in people. Mm-hmm. Um, you have the people that see the best in, in people or see the best in, in, in life. And certainly for Nikki and I, we, we like to be the latter. We like to see the best in people. We like to see the best in, in situations. And as a consequence of that sort of mindset, we believe we lead, we lead much more enjoyable lives. So it's easy to see the worst in everybody. We've all got, we've all got faults, haven't we? Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree. Okay, so, so just, just on the game model, one thing you said, Danny, and I'm going to actually propose this to Nikki. Um, talked about transitional football, talked about playing attacking and, and, and being positive in that in that game. Um, I, I, I always challenged people who are possession merchants, let's call it for want of a better expression. You know, back over the last 10 years has been, well, we like to play out from the back. And um, there's some fairly sort of vanilla statements that I think a lot of coaches make about what they like to do with a ball. Maybe, maybe influenced by the likes of Pep, for example, with a tiki-taka explosion and what have you. But I always say to them, well, what do you do when you're playing against a team who play direct. How do you defend against that? How are you preparing your team for that if your focus is primarily on your ideals as a possession-based team? The same question I guess I would ask to you is how do you go about putting in the fundamentals on possession that you might need, let's say, to kill a game with 20 minutes to go or 10 minutes to go when you're two or three nil up, having played that football that you're, you're, you're having nailed the game plan the Cowley game plan and you're up how do you go about coaching and this is like say why I ask it to you Nikki because I'm thinking about and I've got an image of you putting out cones on a training pitch how do you go about making sure that that team are comfortable in possession to deal to look after the football and see out a game in terms of closing out games this is a conversation Danny and myself have had actually quite recently to be honest and um, I think that yeah, you, you have different options, don't you? You either continue um, to try to, if you're winning 1-0 or 2-0, you continue to try and keep scoring goals and attack. Yeah. Yeah. Or or you decide to say, no, this is no, there's no point. We don't need to score any more goals. We're winning the match as it is. Let's, um, let's make sure we're very difficult to beat and defensively stable and make it very hard for the opponent to score. Um, and I've seen managers... Um, you know, have, have huge success using both approaches. I think if I looked at Bielsa, his approach would be about going to score more <laughs> goals and relentlessly just keep on going and running forward. And if I looked at Mourinho, uh, another manager we spoke about in this in this call, he would probably use a much more defensive, disciplined um, mindset. For Danny and myself, our feeling on this is, I believe that as long as the whole group um, have a clarity about how we're going to close that game out, whether it is through attacking and trying to score more goals or yeah. whether it is through having a more defensive, stable approach. Um, it, it just has to be aligned and it has to be clear for everybody. And what I don't like is when it gets grey and you might have some players thinking we're going to carry on trying to score more goals and other players taking their foot off the gas and maybe trying to sit in more shape because that's when I actually feel that you lose control. Yeah, I mean, it's back, it's, back, it's back to your players as well, isn't it? Like Danny said before, if you've got a certain type of player, a certain type of makeup, and they're extremely good at playing the Mourinho style of football, and mentally, 
they're nailed they can nail that quickly and you have that cohesion then why, why would you try and change it because of your own philosophy so it's that makes that makes of a lot of sense Danny anything to add on that I think it's always yeah it's always context isn't it so for us in games if we are if we're winning and we've got a two goal lead and we've got control and momentum absolutely it would be to go for the third goal um if we were managing a group that maybe their confidence was more fragile maybe we we're in the lead but we didn't have control and momentum in the game yeah then it would be, so it's situation specific all the time and i think what what's really important is that there's a clear message so that the players you can't you you try to empower the players so that they are able to feel the temperature feel the moment and then select collectively the right the the, the right game plan in that moment and that and that that is why i think it's always it you know you can you can you can have your your game model and your ideals but you you always have to have to remember that football is is situation specific and the context yeah. I think it's the I think as well is our responsibility as coaches to educate the players um, in your training methodology throughout the week for these differential scenarios um, ultimately because these are situations that the players are going to find themselves in and whilst you don't have the crowd at training um, I believe that you still can have an influence on the players' mindset if you put them in these different different scenarios you know through, throughout your during your at some stage during your training week. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah, I mean, that's it. Yeah, it's and, it, and that's not an overnight. That's not an overnight thing, is it? You don't say, right, well, on Wednesday we're going to cover this, and then I've got it nailed. It's you have to build that and layer it through a process and for, through a period of time, don't you? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But if you if you if you were asking my ideal, it would always be to find a. If I was two 0 up, it would be to find the third goal. I, I always right. say. If you can go, if you go five goals up, then I sit down. It's the only time I ever sit down. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. And it's, it's, it's difficult to relax on the sideline, isn't it? I mean, there's, there's, there's plenty of people out there who say, you know, you should you should sit back and just just watch the game go, like like some of the old school managers back in the Dutch, uh, what's his name, um, Renus Meikles, and people like that, just, just sit down and have a cigarette or whatever it was while the game's going on. I, I can't yeah. see how any manager could ever do that. <laughs> You have to be authentic to yourself, don't you? So you know you have to you have to be you have to be yourself ultimately. If you want any longevity in football, you, then you have to be true to yourself for sure. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, just 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 one other point then on on game models and and um, in possession stuff particularly. Uh, well, both actually. I I have a a theory or a comment to make in general that I think maybe coaches spend a little bit too much time working on the area between the two penalty areas uh, rather than in the two penalty areas, the business end of the pitch. Uh, I see a lot of defenders who are very good at recognising pressing triggers. Um, I see a lot of defenders who are very good at maybe driving out of, out of the defensive area and recognising an opportunity to, 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 to run with the ball and break lines in that way. But I don't see that many of them able to do the bread and butter stuff in, the, in their own penalty area and stop the ball ending up in the back of the net. And by the same token, I see a lot of strikers who might be able to link play very well, might be able to, to press the opponents high uh, and be excellent at that, but might not necessarily recognise that there's an opportunity to shift and shoot, which might win you the football match. What do you think about that? I think you hear, you hear a lot of coaches who almost say that it's their responsibility to get them to the final third and then it's the player's responsibility thereafter. And I don't agree with that personally. I don't either. Statement. I think it's our responsibility as coaches to, to 
um, help the players in, in every aspect of the game. Um, and, and like you've rightly alluded to, you know, both games are won in, in both boxes. So, so ultimately, you know, when you look at the training diet throughout the week, there has to be enough and enough focus in those two in 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 those two moments. And, yeah. Um, yeah, I think sometimes modern day forwards spend a lot of their time outside of the box and almost are more interested in linking and combining and rather than actually actually getting in where it matters and making sure that you've got enough numbers in the in 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 the goal in the goal area. We know for ourselves, our teams, you know. 84% of our goals are scored with a one or two touch finish in a 12 yard box. So, you know, you know that you have to make sure that you get enough quality balls into that area and you get enough, enough, enough players in that area. Yeah. And, and certainly from a, from a defensive perspective, you know, work on, on firstly stopping crosses and stopping passes into your box. We've kind of tweaked the way that, that, that we work and just to, I suppose the terminology really, but we yeah. kind of, we we kind of work on defending the half. So for our first aim is to defend our half, then it's to defend the box, to stop opponents getting into our box, and then it's to defend the goal, and then yeah. fill in the frame and making sure that 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 you defend that part of the part of the pitch. Uh, when you when you say fill in the frame, I, I'm, I assume you mean. Fill the areas that are most dangerous and make sure you've got bodies in there. The frame of the goal, yeah. So for yeah. us, always be firstly, can you stop the ball going into your into your box? Yeah. Uh, then you accept that sometimes it does, and when it does, can you make sure that 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 you've got the players in the right place to be able to then defend to defend that moment and um, fill in the frame again? If you if you look at if you look at football from from right at the beginning. That's kind of 84% statistic kind of runs through football. One or two touch finishes in that kind of, you can imagine a 12-yard area. So stopping the ball going in is the, is the reverse, isn't it? Stopping the ball going into those areas. And then when yeah. it does those areas, making sure that you've got the numbers to be able to, to, to deal with, 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 with that is, is, is obviously paramount. Yeah. OK. Nicky? Yeah, it's interesting that you asked this question, Kevin, because I think my most frustrated moments on the line with Danny, um, in the dugout, sorry, has probably been when we've played quite good football between the boxes, but never quite got enough numbers. Oh, sorry. <laughs> never, sorry, played good football between the boxes, but never quite had enough numbers inside the box to be yeah. really effective. Um, and yeah, those, those particular performances where... You feel like you have a lot, your lion's share of possession, but don't actually create or work the keeper as much as you should. Are often some of your most um, frustrating games, um, yeah. really. So I, I, I agree. I, I don't believe that your job as a coach is just to get to the final third. Otherwise, you know, we wouldn't coach aspects or concepts like movement in the box, which is really important. Um, you know, I could mention many coming inside to shoot, cutbacks, getting into assist zones. Out swinging early crosses, in swinging crosses, um, you know, uh, blindside runs, all penetrating movements in behind. Um, the defences are all really, really key concepts for us in an attacking sense. And I think that what you need to do throughout the week is try to um, make sure that you're giving them the, the, the players enough uh, routine and individual um, um, practice in these 
uh, you know, for these key concepts. Yeah. Um, you might coach them more explicitly, um, where um, you're 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 explaining to players exactly what you want um, and giving them really clear coaching points. Because I think even um, you know championship players that I've worked with um, recently need that, um, and at the same time working the players in, in departments, but then maybe as the week progresses um, in more tactical collective sessions as well, where, you know, a, t a, a simple tactical constraint might be that the goal only counts if there's three players inside the box. So straight yeah. away, a, a small constraint like that would encourage players to, to want to aggressively attack the box um, as, a, as just a, an example of the, off the top of my head. But the, these, these more implicit ways of coaching, I guess, uh, are great for, uh, your tactical sessions where you might not be stopping the session all of the time as a coach and telling players exactly what they've got to be doing. Um, but it's more of a case of them feeling the, the the practice and understanding the circumstance of the environment that you've created as a coach um, to, to, to then perform the right behaviours to be successful. And I think um, nowadays we, we have the great benefit of video analysis as well. So once you perform these sessions, you're able to you know, uh, spend time with the player, analysing the, the clips from training and yeah. finding ways to improve, you know, technically and tactically. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think the detail, a few years ago when I, when I came and watched you guys at Lincoln, the thing that I, the thing that you opened my eyes to that day, I'll be honest, a lot of what I saw was stuff that I felt I already had a reasonable handle on. But when we sat down and talked about the reasons why you score or concede goals, it was the level of detail you went into about the, the phase before the final action or maybe even two phases before that I think most people outside the professional game, outside full-time football, will never understand enough. And I'm certainly one of them. So when you, when you explained that a goal had been conceded and you, and you showed me, OK, you can, you, you can ask the defender to apply more pressure or perhaps even defend space better... But actually, it came from this area of the pitch. And it's not the first time it's come from that area of the pitch. And we designed our sessions to deal with this particular challenge. That level of detail was was brilliant for, for me. It was really eye-opening for me. And, and some of the things you've just referred to there in terms of the level of detail, for me, it correlates with the full and part-time game. Um, for people like myself who, who've never worked as a coach in, in the professional game, how, how do I manage... Uh, a, let's say a, a micro cycle or, or a, a macro cycle of, of training sessions that, and make sure that that correlates to, to results or that it correlates to situations that we find on a, on a Saturday or on a Tuesday night. And I think what you, what you showed me that day was, was something I'd never seen before, if I'm brutally honest. I think what you're always trying to do is you're trying to understand your performance, aren't you? So you're yeah. always trying to, to understand the, the player's performance, so first and foremost, the individual players that you have at your disposal, can you get them to understand their performance? Why they play well, why, why maybe they play badly? So they get a really clear understanding of, of, of their playing identity. Um, and then once you've got that, then they're much more able to take ownership over their performance and actually then start trying to improve their performance. And, and it's no different with the team. You look at the team and you're looking at why do you win, why do you lose? And and then once you once you've got that clear understanding, then then from there you can then start to to plan ways of trying to keep continue to work on what you're good at and what helps you to win, but also to look for the correlations and patterns and yeah. what leads to chart. We don't 
we don't analyse, of course we analyse the goals we concede, but it's actually we analyse the chances we concede. Because yes. some, the opposing number nine can run through clear on goal and miss a clear chance. And that's, we, we, you know, that's just as important to us. You've still got work to do, yeah. yeah as it would be for the, for the time that he, that, that he scores. So it's always, yeah, to try to look for the patterns and the correlations. And then once you've got that clear understanding of your own performance, then training and planning training becomes so much clearer, so much clearer. And it's yeah. to try to work that way around, really. Sometimes as I see grassroots coaches with an incredible amount of energy and enthusiasm um, and they find a drill because we live in this world, don't we, of, of, of social media and YouTube drills. And sometimes they don't or they, they find a drill that they like, like the look of. And we can all do this as coaches because we we want the session to look good. We want the session to feel good. We want the players to enjoy the session. But we have to make sure that the, the session is productive first and foremost. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think I agree. I agree with you there, Dan. It's, it's more about what the players need rather than what the coaches want to do um, for, for, for their own session to look good, I guess. And yeah. I think if you really study the matches that your team have played in um, or the forthcoming opponent, then a lot of your training content will be there. Yeah, yeah. So so um, it's an interest. I'm going to pick up on that a little bit. Is that because you're going to nullify their, their, their strengths? Is it because your strengths... Can, can you know you can you can you can expose them using the strengths that you know you've got? I mean, what what's the balance there? Because if if I was being cynical there or or, or, or critical even, Nicky, I would say, why don't you just look at your own strengths? Why don't, why don't you forget what the opponents are going to do and make sure that what you do is absolutely nailed on and not worry about what other other teams are doing? And I'm I'm being you know I'm I'm putting it out there, I'm playing devil's advocate. I'm not saying that's what I would say. Of course. Um... Yeah, for me, I, I you know, if I'm going to go to battle, I always like to know exactly what weapons that my um, opponent yeah. has at uh, his disposal. And um, personally, I like a balance of, of both. I like us to be focused enough on our game idea and our game model and um, knowing the intricacies of what that looks like, um, but also how then that's going to work against the scenario of the opposition that you're playing against. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, if you just... If you just do um, perform exactly the same idea all of the time, then I think you could find yourself exposed maybe against really smart coaches that know how to beat yeah. your idea with their own system. So there, there has to be um, you know more than one, more than one plan within your idea, and I think that making sure that you consider all of your own players' strengths and weaknesses again a lot of the time you can find your answers with how you can fine tune. Um, your game idea to be able to, you know, overcome all the different scenarios that, that you're that you're going to face. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, you, you probably said what, what I would have said if someone had asked me the same question. I think the obvious the obvious reference point here is is the, the genius that is Bielsa, um, and what he does and repeats and expects in terms of output from his team week in, week out, regardless of who they're playing against. And that's the one outlier, the exception to, to the rule for me. Yeah, but I look at Bielsa and, I, and he's so adaptable to me because he, he changes his formation depending on the opponent. If the opponent plays yeah. two up, he'll always play he'll always play a back three because he wants to plus one on the defensive line. Um, 
he, he he's forever adapting and changing the the formation he uses depending on the formation of the opponent. And you know, certainly against the ball, it's pretty much the same each game in terms of very very man to man. So well, I think he calls it changing the mark. Um, he coaches them so well to adapt when they lose their man in the in the one v one moment that they are. They're, they're very adaptable. It's going to be really interesting for me to see Leeds' journey from here on in because they've obviously had huge success in the Premier League against the, the bottom 10 clubs. They've found it difficult against the top, top clubs, haven't they, when they play against the likes of Manchester United, the Tottenham, yeah. City, the Tottenham. They've found it, found it more difficult. But you've got to also remember the players that Bielsa has at his disposal, and I would love to see Bielsa manage Man United, for example. I'd love to see what he could do with with, with players. Um, and 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 it's interesting, isn't it? Because the man-to-man style has worked really successfully in the Championship. You look at Bielsa, you look at David Wagner at, at Huddersfield prior yeah. to Australia. You look at um, Neil Warnock, um, and he's he's had a very much a man-to-man style, and it works in the Championship. And it's yet to be decided whether it whether they can take that defensive system and work it in the in the Premier League. Yeah, um, you're obviously playing against top players who are very very good at uh, at maximise maximising the one v one moment. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it's, it, it, brilliant, brilliant examples there. Different ends of the football spectrum, probably for most people. You know, Warnock and Bielsa, but with similar principles. I, I, I think that's. You know, and, you, and your response to me there was was great. You know, listen, you know, Kev, these these, you know, what Bielsa does is he adapts. We just don't, you know, to the naked eye. Sometimes you don't always see this, and to, to the you know the, the armchair fan, particularly, they don't see it. Uh, and and you know, I'm suggesting there that he doesn't he doesn't change his way of playing, but he does more analysis on opponents than any other manager. I mean, I know you two work damn hard. I don't think you're quite going to get always the level of detail that Bielsa's probably demanded from his admittedly huge team of, of analysts and, and, and coaching staff. Uh, but it's brilliant. OK, so, so sorry, go on. I think that's the challenge. You kind of, what I love about football is there's many different ways. If there was one way, we'd all do it the same way, wouldn't we? Yeah, yeah. Many, many different ways. And, you know, for Nicky and I, we love to to look at all different managers and coaches and the way they work and all different styles and ways and you're trying to trying to find the the best way for for, for you moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um I just there's gonna be quite a few coaches listen to this, watch this on YouTube, and I think a lot of or ninety percent of those coaches will probably have gone through a process where they've they've done their badges relatively early. There's a, there's certainly been a, a fantastic development or that there's been a culture of development for coaches in the last 10-15 years in the UK and I believe it's a it's a it's a world leading kind of you know territory for, for developing as a coach um, but a lot of those those qualifications and that education process doesn't necessarily go hand in hand with real time and real kind of impactful football I guess uh, it might be that you, you get a I don't know UA for a coach coaching an under-16s team in a, in a grassroots club, um, which is fantastic that there's that, that level of knowledge, but not necessarily the experience that, that might go with it. For you guys, it's a little bit the other way around. You've, you've earned your stripes all the way through the football system, and I know we're all very passionate about non-league football. 
um, and we're all very passionate about the depth of of, uh, of, of quality in, in the English pyramid. But you've done that and then you kind of, you know, on top of the teaching stuff, because you no doubt qualifications that have gone hand in hand with your career prior to football. But how has the education process been for you? Have your eyes been opened in a way that might you might perceive could be different to the, the coaches that I've just described? Well, do you, do you want to answer that, Nick, or shall I? I so, hello. Hello, the line's just cut out. Have you got me? Do you hear that, Nicky? Yeah, I'm, I, I can hear you now. Yeah, I think... Can you can you hear me, Kevin? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. perfect. I think, I think our, our, our journey has been unique. I, I definitely wouldn't change it for the world. What it's given us is so much time on the grass, so much opportunity to kind of develop and refine our skills. Yeah. Uh, whether it be through coaching at a really young age, because kind of our dad coached mine and Nicky's team. Yeah. Uh, and I suppose that was the inspiration for us to, you know, I looked at my dad and the relationship he had with my friends um, and they loved him for the way he introduced them to football and just got them loving and enjoying their football. I mean, I still speak to a lot of my teammates now um, about the fun that we had we had growing up. And I think that was the inspiration for us. And, and certainly the, the amount of hours we've had on the, on the grass to get it wrong, because ultimately when you're, when you're picking up a new skill and, and a really, really tough skill, which is coaching, teaching, um, you're gonna make you're gonna make mistakes, you know. To get the finer details, the the right dimensions, the right numbers, the right outcomes that you're trying to achieve is is it takes time, it, it, without a doubt. And we've we've had thousands and thousands of hours on the grass to to be able to develop that. I mean, I I look at the likes of Frank Lampard, Stephen Gerrard, and I'm full of admiration of the fact that they've pretty much had a, the brilliant footballing careers that they've had, and they've just picked up management at, at, at pretty much the top level and I can only I can only imagine how tough that experience must be for those guys yeah. um, but for us to be able to 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 learn our trades I suppose make mistakes outside of the outside of the public eye has been has been crucial and I think now we have clarity over how we want to work and our way of working um and and that's something that's constantly evolving you know yeah. that's something that's really important for us that's the the, the great thing you know i've spent 90 percent of my life in education in some form either as the pupil the coach the teacher and the one thing it's taught me is to keep trying to learn and keep trying to find ways of of, of doing things better um yeah. and 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 we, we 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 love this process. I mean, the period that we're in now is very different from Nikki and I because we're it's the first time in our adult lives that we haven't worked. Yeah, um, yeah. Just opportunity to be able to to reflect and to be able to spend time on 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 our own self development because that's something you don't always get as a coach because you're you're ultimately a servant to the players, aren't you? You know, well, you they're always in the forefront of your mind. You yeah. you do everything to create the very best environment and learning opportunities for them and sometimes you do naturally as a consequence forget about yourself so, so yeah. to be able to and, and 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 be able to do that hopefully we'll, we'll come through this 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 experience better as a as a consequence yeah 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 i, I mean I, 
I think we've we've exchanged information and 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 you know coaching sources and inspirations I guess over time, and I know how hard you two worked to build your repertoire to learn from other people when you were in the middle of that consecutive you know storm of football for for goodness knows how long about well, ten years probably nonstop, um, and at sometimes you know working two jobs as well. And yet you've had this period of time to now reflect, to maybe benefit from truly elite support in terms of coaching development. And and I, I can only imagine that that would just add, you know, we're not, none of us go to go, go on a course or, or, or go and watch someone else coach and learn huge amounts because we're already developed to, to a reasonable level anyway. And you guys are obviously developed to an elite level already. But those minor details that you get from different sources of information and from different, like I say, inspirations. You're doing your pro license. My assumption is that some of the studies that you've done have been in more detail than they were when you were working 90 hour weeks combining, you know, the, the football and the, and the and the teaching. I mean, how's that been for you, Nicky? I've, um, you know, just tried to, uh, with Danny, use this time to try to keep striving to improve and stay ahead of the game, Kevin. Um, Ultimately, you know, it's really important that you have that humility where you recognise that you just don't have all the answers and yeah, the game's yeah. constantly changing, evolving. So you need to um, find that time to, to reflect on the work that you've previously done and think about how you won, why you lost, but also speak to, to people, uh, listen to new ideas, be open minded. Um, you know, that, that, that's really that's really important to, to keep improving as a, as a coach. And I think. What we have to remember is, and I was listening to a podcast not so long ago, and I don't know if I've got the exact words here, but it was something like, we, and we've touched on this already in this conversation, but it said something along the lines of, you, you know, I don't work with footballers, I work with people that play football. And um, I think um, a huge benefit that Danny and myself had teaching in, in, in a school was that you're meeting thousands of different types of personalities and you're connecting with um, people on a daily basis, whether it be students, staff, and then to use some of um, those skills um, at a football club um, was was really important because you have to create a really psychologically safe place in my mindset before you start coaching a person. And, yeah. you know, that person that you're connecting with has got to be really clear that you're there for their best interest and you ultimately just want them to get better. And if you are offering uh, criticism, it's with their best interest at heart um, and you know, you're you're on a journey together. And I think that as much as you can look at the next best drill to deliver or or, or the next best practice that, that, that is going to really excite and be a, a, a drill for the players to enjoy, it, it, it is a lot of it is about um, connecting with people and um, making sure that you that you understand that before you start trying to coach them. Yeah, yeah. And there's a, there's a, you know, there's a lot of very well-qualified coaches out there who regrettably don't have the ability to connect in the same way. And, and and can that be coached? Can they improve that? No doubt about it. But, you know, there's, there's I think, you know, Pep says it, Nagelsmann says it, it's about connection. It's about connection. If you don't have that quality of connection, you can have every bit of theory, you can have every single coaching badge in the book, but if, when you hold an audience, they're not listening to you and they're not, they're not inspired by you, it's a difficult job to go out there and, and, and manage a football team, coach a football team, or even teach a child. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, you see a yeah. lot of education, see a lot of real academics that become teachers 
But if they don't have that connection, it doesn't matter how much they know, it's what they can convey. And Absolutely. It's absolutely. Coaching, teaching is the personality game, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, final final topic. We've just touched on it ever so slightly. The future generation. We've all got kids of similar ages, um, very passionate about about the prospects for our for, for, for the next generation. Um, what um, what do we think that life and football is going to be like for the, for for the next generation? Um, perhaps partly as a result of the the experience we've had with COVID, but also just in terms of the way that football football channels talent and develops people these days? Good question. I think we've actually been doing a project of what football looks like in 10 years time because naturally you want to try to stay ahead of the curve. So it's yeah. good to see actually what football looks like. We went back to 2010 and looked at the game then compared to the game now. And there's, there's obviously been VAR and some lots of rule changes because Mr Kalina likes to likes <laughs> with our game, um, unfortunately. But... But, but there's been the biggest changes been in coaching and, and the quality of coaching back from 2010 to now has, has, has improved dramatically. Yeah. Uh, players are now much more empowered. Um, they've got much more clarity over, over, the, the, over what they want, but also their understanding as a consequence of good, good, good coaching, which is great. Um, what will football look like in 2030, 2031? I don't know. I think heading, I maybe maybe come out of the game. There's 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 the potential for this. I can't see what football would look like. I think goalkeeping as well. I think um, you know has has changed dramatically, isn't it? You know what we're asking our goalkeepers to do now, and um, gone are the days of maybe um, the head coach. Um, uh, you know leaving the goalkeeper uh, and his coach just to go away on a corner somewhere and practice. They're a huge part of. Of, um, of 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 the performance, and you know, I think Arteta most recently is is a coach that's asking his goalkeeper to do so much in possession, um, yeah. and you know that that is a huge huge influence on on their game idea and the way they play. And um, yeah, I, I definitely see see um, you know um, us having to educate ourselves on and how to integrate goalkeepers into outfield sessions and 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 how we can best use them really to yeah. to give us to give us maybe overloads or an advantage um over the opponent yeah yeah also throw-ons i wonder if because of the world that we live in we live in this fast-paced world don't we and you know young young children want every want everything straight away my my, my young boy george if he ever has to sit through adverts he, he almost has head loss because it's a swipe <laughs> Yeah. in the cartoon and I think as a product of that we want this fast paced game and I wonder if they take throw ones out so that they can speed the game up and then what that will look like so I think these are all these these, these are all possibilities when you talk about player development I, I still come back to I still come back to it that particularly and it's always again context it depends the, the age of the player but but sure. the young, Youngest players for for any grassroots coaches, it's just make it fun, make it really enjoyable, get the children to love it. Once the children love the game, then they will become naturally curious, and once they then that you then spark that curiosity, then you've got them. Then you can add the technical and tactical detail. But before that, 
before before that point, don't don't try to force it down their throats. Just get them enjoying and loving the game because we all know best from our own experiences that if you enjoy what you're doing, then the 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 amount of learning you take on dramatically increases. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's a massive challenge, isn't it, for 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 coaches at you know academies? Because my my opinion is that coaches working with that kind of 9, 10, 11, 12, sort of a foundation phase kids, that's that's the future of a nation's footballing success. And and I think over here, I'm, I'm very concerned, you know, for Spain's um, future um, because of the focus on winning and the focus on athleticism and the focus on all these things that we used to say that the UK had a problem with and England had a problem with. Um, and I don't see them doing it just for the love and I don't see them the playful nature that you need to develop and the inquisitive nature you need to develop in kids for them to kick on. That's a concern for me over here. But I think it's also a problem across the board because with you know, the microwave society where, as you say, kids want everything now, then the patience to go through a process that develops you as a footballer and a person and in a team and, and an identity with a club maybe this generation isn't going to have them. So, you know, I, I, I consider myself almost, you know, a dinosaur now in comparison to a lot of the stuff that's going on out there. And I think coaches and clubs need to consider different ways of engaging with this generation because it's completely different to the generation that we grew up in back in the 80s. It's just, they don't have the patience to, to, to stick it out, do they? No, absolutely. And what, what you also have to remember is that our generation we could go outside and we could go play on the streets, we could play in the park, it'd be jumpers down the goalposts and there'd be loads of opportunity for us to experiment and practice and rehearse. Our, our children don't, don't always get those opportunities. No, Some no. within the coaching cycle, particularly at academies, you know, we need to try to provide the opportunity and the time for children just to play because yeah. play sometimes creates the, the, the best learning and and certainly, you know, that, that is something that I think we have to, as a society and, and as coaches, we have to be mindful of. Yeah, I mean, it's back to what Nicky said before about what the players need and what the, what, the, what the coach wants to deliver. There can be two different things with that age group, can't they? I mean, you know, we've, we've all seen coaches turn in with their badges and their, and their, their folders and the, this is what I want to deliver. But do the, do the kids need that? Not sure. Chaos can be a good thing. Chaos, yeah. you know. It's pretty chaotic. There's quite a lot of transitions, and sometimes yeah. we all try, try to create the perfect session. But but no, it's always you know I I, I like to see chaos. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> okay, um, gents, I'm going to draw things to a close. Um, I could have talked all afternoon with you guys. I really appreciate your time. Um, I just want to say, I think in you know, you've been an inspiration for me um, and an awful lot of people out there, but both not just not just coaches and, and you know the supporters of the clubs you've managed, um, but but also just people in general. I think you, 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 your your profiles are unique in the game still, and and I think that's I'm I'm a bit disappointed in that in some respects, not because of what you've done, but because perhaps the game hasn't embraced the type of people that it could bring in to the the, the closed shop sometimes, um, and I think. The way that and the impact that you guys have had on on clubs, in particularly, um, I think is immense, absolutely immense. And and congratulations on that. Um, and thanks again for your time. Wish both of you and your families the best for 2021. 
Um, and I'm sure like a lot of people out there, um, I, I will continue to scour the news and your interviews and your, your podcasts and your, and your um, you know, anything that you have to say because I find it interesting. Love talking to you about the game. Um, and as I say, I'm really looking forward to you guys getting back in. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, always, Kevin. Always great. Okay. Thanks, mate. No problems. No problems. All the best. And uh, I'll the best. catch up with you soon, no doubt. Thanks, gents. Yeah. Bye-bye. Take care.